Welcome to the Ottoman History Podcast. I'm Chris Grayton. The topic of today's conversation is politics of the family in the new Turkey. This is one of our episodes that looks at a more contemporary question in Turkey and the broader Middle East, the post-Ottoman world as we often refer to it. And our guest on the program is an anthropologist who studies that region, Hikmet Kocamaner. Hikmet, welcome. Thanks for having me. It's great to have you on. Hikmet Kocamaner is an assistant professor of cultural anthropology at the University of North Carolina, Wilmington. That's a very new position. Congratulations, Hikmet. Thank That's you, great. Um, he's been all over the Boston area over the past years. He was a visiting assistant professor of anthropology at Boston University, uh, a postdoc at Brandeis, and a visiting fellow at Harvard. I don't know why MIT wasn't willing to have <laughs> you as well, but hopefully you can complete <laughs> the uh, Boston uh, Research University um, punch <laughs> card at some point. Hikmet has a wide variety of research interests, secularism, political Islam, Islamic media, kinship, and the politics of family. He's got a forthcoming article in the Anthropological Quarterly uh, related to today's conversation entitled Strengthening the Family Through Television, Islamic Broadcasting, Secularism, and the Politics of Responsibility in Turkey. So far, our international audience who is coming at this subject from outside of a Turkish uh, social and cultural context, we're going to be talking about something that's very familiar, which is changing discourses surrounding family values uh, and specifically faith-based initiatives concerning the family. Uh, and for our listeners in Turkey, what we're going to specifically be talking about is those faith-based initiatives as they manifest in a variety of uh, institutions and organizations, NGOs, government programs, and uh, we're going to especially uh, focus in on television programming and how it, how it relates to these discourses concerning the family. And I think for our listeners who, who know the political landscape of Turkey over the, let's say, past two decades and sort of the dynamics that have played into uh, the rise of the AKP or Justice and Development Party, as translated in English, uh, this story will be fascinating and, and, and familiar somehow. Um, so I, I guess a good place to start our conversation is to ask, you know, is this something that's new that was taking place in Turkey? You have in the in the title of your, your working book manuscript this uh, phrase, the new Turkey. So what do you mean by the new Turkey? What's new here? What's the, what's the shift that you're, that, that's been identified sort of in these family-oriented discourses over the past two decades? The new Turkey is a term not coined by me. It's actually sure. widely used by uh, members of the AKP government, specifically former president, former prime minister and current president Erdogan. When Erdogan became the first uh, popularly elected president, he said that this election kind of signals the triumph of the new Turkey. But we've seen that, you know, especially within the past probably 10 years or so, a lot of the AKP members have been using this discourse to differentiate themselves from the Kemalist era. So if you look at the history of this term, actually Atatürk himself also used the term New Turkey yeah. to refer to the, you know, the foundation of the Republic and its reforms. Right. Uh, so it's, it's a term that signals basically the kind of the replacement of the, of the ancien regime and the kind of the construction of a new political system. So I think that's what we are seeing here. But 
when we look at the um, AKP politicians, they think about the Kemalist era as some sort of, you know, a political regime defined by authoritarianism, an extreme form of secularism that was mm -hmm. antagonistic to the public expression of uh, religion and visibility of religious symbols, um, as well as an era defined by military coups and oppression and all these kind of things. So the new Turkey in their mind represents the triumph of democracy or bringing back democracy. But as we see recently, you know, this is a very questionable kind of claim. And we see a lot of continuities between the early Republican sure. era and the AKP era. So what we see in AKP, this new Turkey, is not necessarily some sort of anti-secular or a religious government, but as a conservative uh, Muslim political system. And if you look at AKP's political program, they define themselves not Islamist or even Muslim, they define themselves as a conservative Democrat party. Right. And looking at the um, party program, you see that there are absolutely no references to Islam or Sharia or anything like that, anything remotely religious. However, there are a lot of references to the family, right. and protecting family values. The whole kind of system of governance and the whole regime that the AKP proposes um, as the new Turkey revolves around this new emphasis on the family and protecting family values, as well as projects aimed at uh, strengthening the family. And one last thing that I'd like to add that's different from the Kemalist system is that the Previously, debates about secularism revolved around kind of the participation of um, Islamic groups and actors into parliamentary politics. And this was a big taboo. And there were a lot of you know uh -huh. military coups yeah. and a lot of other things that prevented that. But after the AKP came to power, a lot of these debates have been settled. What we see now is that the Kind of the scope of a lot of the controversies about secularism shifted from parliamentary politics toward the politics of intimacy and the family, especially because of Erdogan and other AKP politicians' conservative discourse about yeah. the family and government's uh, conservative uh, policies about the family. All right, so let's stick with the family then for the remainder of our conversation. Um, could you talk about some of the institutions or policies and uh, activities in which we see AKP and, you know, the broader uh, social forces that uh, support it mobilizing around the family. You know, what are what are the um, uh, social and institutional political manifestations of this new uh, family and family values oriented political trajectory? One of the things that have been um becoming very prevalent is the moral panic discourse about the family. So in the media, as well as politicians' speeches, as well as the policies on the family, we see a lot of emphasis on this notion of the family crisis and the need to strengthen the family so that the ailing family institution gets recuperated uh, somehow. So that's one of the kind of political discourses that have been uh, circulating a lot since the AKP came to power. What is this family crisis discourse? Let me talk a little bit about that and its relation to, you know, governance, 
uh, its political purpose, basically. So, so basically, when they say that family is in crisis, uh, what they mean is that the uh, family, they situate the family as the source of a lot of uh, socioeconomic problems, uh, such as you know unemployment, poverty, uh, homelessness, uh, crime, yeah. etc. Even terrorism is related to the mm-hmm. ailing family institution. You know, people wouldn't be prone to crime if their family was not deteriorating. So the social and the moral orders are kind of at risk. And by extension, the Turk- Turkish nation is at risk because the family values are uh, deteriorating in the contemporary era. So they, they propose strengthening the family through not only policies, but also certain social and pedagogical uh, projects uh, with the idea that the society would be uh, facing fewer problems if um, the family were to fulfill its function in kind of um, um, disciplining and policing its individual members uh, appropriately. Um, So what is perhaps unprecedented um, in the politics of the family under the AKP era is the proliferation of um, faith-based initiatives and social and pedagogical projects that are more religiously motivated. Mm -hmm. Um, So with the encouragement of the government, we've seen a lot of Islamic civil society organizations, um, Islamic media institutions, as well as the Directorate of Religious Affairs, which is akin to a state ministry, and we'll talk more about it in a minute, I hope. Uh, So these institutions have started producing uh, family-related projects. And what we see that's interesting is that the scope of um, these organizations' kind of jurisdiction have relatively expanded. So looking at, for example say, Islamic televisions, Um, the kind of programming they had before, um, prior to AKP, was kind of theological in character, uh, focusing on the more doctrinal and scriptural aspects of Islam and educating the public about, you know, certain religious norms. But within the past about 10 to 13 years, they have started producing family-related programs aimed at kind of resolving domestic disputes. Looking at the Directorate of Religious Affairs, again, their jurisdiction was limited to administering the religious affairs of the uh, country, appointing imams, uh, building mosques, and publishing, for example, uh, religious books to educate the public, and so on. But since 2003, they have started opening family guidance and religious counseling bureaus, Mm -hmm. which are actually staffed by uh, mostly female, not always, but mostly female preachers who are giving spiritual guidance as well as uh, kind of some sort of a pastoral care function about the family aimed at resolving domestic problems. And where and where are these located? Is this just in major cities? Is this like in every city in Turkey? Like how much has this expanded since 2003? So they actually have expanded exponentially. Initially it was in major cities, but now pretty much every city, even some small counties have these um family guidance offices. They are usually affiliated with the muftiyates, muftuluk, mm-hmm. uh, which are kind of the local branches of the Directorate of Religious Affairs, 
where each office is responsible for regulating the religious affairs of that particular county or the city. So each of these müftülük buildings have an office uh, in which people can visit and talk about their family problems. I think for our listeners in the United States, it's necessary to further clarify the relationship between Dianet or the Ministry of Religious Affairs and these these müftülüks and these different religious institutions uh, and the government, um, because Turkey may differ quite substantially from the United States in other cases in that uh, while being a secular government, uh, it's also a place where, in fact, uh, the government and uh, religious institutions are very intertwined. They're actually part or or sort of parallel to the, um, the other uh, governing bodies of the, the Republic of Turkey. Could you talk more about that? Sure. Yeah, that's an excellent question. It's a very unique institution. Um, so a lot of people, you know, talk about the kind of the increasing prominence of this institution called Diyanet in Turkish, and I'll be using Diyanet. So, mm-hmm. uh, word so of the day for our listeners. Word of the day for our listeners. So Diyanet is the director of religious affairs. So under the AKP government, it has gained a lot of prominence, and a lot of people see this as some sort of an Islamization project or, you know, overturning secularism. Um, but if you look at it, actually, this institution emerged with the almost the foundation of the republic. Right. In order to, you know, secularize the polity, the early republican uh, administrators and political reformers abolished the Sharia. Yeah. And they abolished also the office of the Sheikh al-Islam, which was the highest religious authority in implementing the Sharia. Um, so what they did instead of completely removing the state being, from being involved with religion, they actually established a new institution right. uh, called the Dianet uh, in order to fill the vacuum created by the abolishment of the office of the Sheikh al-Islam to administer the religious affairs of the newly established uh, state. Right. So in its original form, this was actually a way of checking the power of religious institutions uh, and prominent, let's say, clerical figures uh, within the political landscape of the 1920s, in which perhaps one of the major challenges to Kemalism uh, and this secular project, as we've been calling it, uh, was found amongst political parties, either with uh, religious orientations or amongst the old kind of religious elite that had been still relatively prominent in the Ottoman Empire. Exactly. And looking at the history of Diyanet, we see that the, for example, use of the term ulema pretty much disappears after Diyanet has been established. And men of religion, uh, instead of being autonomous kind of religious authorities, they turn into salaried employees of the secular state. Uh, and they are no longer allowed to wear their religious garbs, so they can only wear a certain kind of uh, homogenous, homogenized kind of uniform in place of worship only. They can't even wear it in public, so their authority is very much curtailed uh, by the state. And Dianet also kind of propagated a certain uniform and orthodox understanding of Sunni Islam. So it discredited a lot of the kind of folk um, practices 
religious practices as well as certain religious denominations right. and heterodox uh, religious orders sure. such as tariqat and jamaat right um, sufi so orders and this type of exactly. thing exactly yeah. sufi orders they completely discredited their religious practices and their r- religious doctrines as even sometimes using derogatory terms as superstitious and uh, reactionary so instead through its publications and through mosque sermons and through other various activities they indoctrinated a kind of a secularism friendly understanding of islam which is a privatized notion of islam that is relegated uh, to the domain of faith ritual practice uh, and religious doctrines rather than a kind of Islam, as in the Ottoman Empire, that encompasses different governmental domains, such as education, mm-hmm. uh, such as law, and even policing and overall governance. So, Dianet was very much instrumental in implementing this particular notion of Islam as privatized faith. And we told our listeners at the beginning that we're going to be talking about a, uh, a present-day question in Turkey through the lens of anthropology, and we have delved deep back into the history here. But understanding this historical relationship is, is really critical for highlighting the larger point that you made at the beginning, that we see what some people would call as Islamic politics working through the secular institutions of the Republic of Turkey. I think that's a very important point to emphasize. Uh, when uh, coming to this uh, topic that we're discussing. Exactly, I agree with that. We need to contextualize historically to understand the present context. And there's lots more we could talk about in terms of the history of the Diyanet and, and politics more broadly in Turkey, but to kind of refocus on the present and return to something that you've worked a lot on and that is really critical to the study, I guess, of, of family and family-oriented discourses, let's talk about television. Uh, You've already talked about the proliferation of television programs relating to the family. And you said that religious television programming has shifted in its sort of content, moving away from the theological precisely towards these social questions like the family. Tell us more about the programs you've looked at, uh, how they're produced and how they're received as well, if, if you could very briefly explain some of that. Religious programming is still there. So you have similar programming throughout the Middle East where you have a religious authority answering questions, especially fatwa questions. Right. So trying to answer whether a certain act or behavior is permissible according to Islamic doctrines. Um, So those kind of shows still happen. But what I saw was even within those shows, there were a lot of questions regarding the family. And when I asked my interlocutors, the people who take part in this kind of programming, uh, so they sometimes claim that it's the audience demand because our family institution is kind of ailing, they said. People want to ask a lot of questions about that. So it's a naturally occurring kind of event. But sometimes I also recognize that they would specifically mention that today we are answering questions related to divorce. Today, our topic is inheritance or what have you. Uh, So that's one aspect of the programming. But what I find more more fascinating is the proliferation of um, talk shows uh, similar to opera and other forms of programming in American television, uh, especially targeting women. 
Um, so in these daytime television, the program host would um, bring a variety of experts regarding the family. Uh, every Friday there would be a mufti, uh, a mufti, uh, especially somebody who's retired from the Directorate of Religious Affairs, which shows their authority. Mm-hmm. You know, this is yeah. not anybody, but a somebody who's authorized by the state, and their knowledge is sound knowledge. They went through all this education. So every Friday, people would ask their family-related questions, but they would also bring other experts, ranging from family counselors to dietitians, hygienists, pediatricians, lawyers, what have you, basically answering any kind of questions related to the family. Another form of programming that I saw that was prevalent was reality TV format. Yeah. So one of these programming was this interesting show called The Family Court. Um, it's a kind of a format similar to Judge Judy in, <laughs> in the United States, uh-huh. where you have a cranky judge, <laughs> this time a male judge, basically educating you know, decisions about the family. Of course, you know, unlike in the United States, television has no power to educate legal decisions. So these are more uh, as a form of kind of uh, warnings and kind of similar to Judge Julie scolding audience members, especially when they um, mishandle their uh, fam- familiar responsibilities. Right. Um, so in each episode, there will be some sort of a family crisis represented. It could be, for example, a um, ir- an irresponsible father who wouldn't send his kids to school. Instead, he would make them work. Uh, mm-hmm. And the judge would scold him and say that, you know, your, your kids should be sent to school and you are not being a good father. And these are the ways to be a good father. Um, so in each episode, you would have similar st- stories. Yeah. Of, for example, you know, uh, stepmoms beating up their children and the judge would warn them pedagogically this is not a good approach that they would show love and mercy to their children so that, you know, their psychology is not damaged and they would be, you know, um, better functioning members of the society when they grow up if they're treated in a loving and caring manner. Um, So another kind of format is more pedagogical, more overtly pedagogical, um, where you'll have either a family counselor or other family-related experts coming together and educating the public in almost somewhat academic way in certain cases about how to manage their domestic affairs, how to resolve familial problems, how to, for example, even resolve certain legal issues related to the family, especially as it pertains to divorce and inheritance and so on. So there's that format as well that's predominantly seen on Islamic television channels. Right. There's a familiar host of actors ranging from sort of government-sanctioned, let's say, legal authorities in a broad sense to, you know, you have your religious authorities, but also then people who I guess are trained in uh, fields like psychology or, you know, different... um, uh, academic uh, disciplines related to, you know, social questions uh, in the family specifically. Exactly. And that's what I'm 
primarily interested in because this whole kind of domain of the politics of the family is a heterogeneous kind of governmental assemblage bringing together a variety of different actors, institutions, and experts, not just necessarily religious, but also secular. And what I'm interested is in is what happens to, for example, religious authority, how it gets reconfigured as it's basically interacting with other forms of disciplines and institutions and forms of authority ranging from psychology and psych- psychiatry to law to politics and so on. So um, I think it's a very interesting phenomenon that's taking shape. So it's not just a matter of bringing back Sharia or answering family questions through kind of uh, religion-based doctrines and principles, but also kind of religion plays this role acting as a gateway between, you know, different institutions and social scientific disciplines and the family. Well, our listeners will certainly look forward to reading more about that. We do have a bibliography on our website, uh, which has references to uh, Hikmet Kojamaner's work, as well as other books related to um, the politics of the family in Turkey and elsewhere. Um, For the remainder of our discussion, we're going to look a little deeper inside your fieldwork. So Hikmet has been kind enough to go through some of his materials on YouTube and find a number of clips or examples of, of the phenomena he's been we've been talking about uh, and send them to me. We've got a link we've got links to a number of these examples on our webpage, ottomanhistorypodcast.com, on the page associated with this podcast. Uh, the particular clip we're going to be listening to is from actually the Dianet TV channel on YouTube. So this is a video that's been put on the web uh, by Dianet itself. It's an episode of a TV program that was released last year, actually in the month of May, a program called Shimdi Ne Yapmalu, which we can kind of translate as what What do we do now? Yeah. So um, we're going to listen to uh, a clip and then talk about it. And Hikmet is going to uh, provide on-the-fly analysis. Uh, so give us a setup. What are What is the problem, the social family problem that they're talking about in this? So in this episode, in this program in general, they are talking about, you know, what to do now, what we are going to do now to address a particular family problem. Um, so it's very solution-oriented, and they come up with specific advice usually given by a family counselor who's educated in this field, who's an expert in this field. Mm -hmm. But our listeners cannot see right now what is different perhaps from other mainstream channels that are not necessarily faith-based or religiously motivated. You see two headscarf-wearing women. Um, One of them is an employee of the Dianet, So she is actually a religious functionary working for the state. She's the host of the show who is moderating and addressing all these questions to an expert who is a family counselor. So what we see in these kind of shows is that their questions are not necessarily religious. They can ask any kind of question related to, you know, contemporary 
family problems. And in this episode, we see a woman uh, sending a question through Twitter or uh, email to the program asking what to do about her husband who is obsessed with uh, playing video games every evening instead of spending time with his family and his kids. He is actually spending all his time playing video games and she doesn't know what to do because she doesn't want to upset her husband by complaining about her about his um, gaming addiction. And now we'll see what the expert suggests. Right. We're going to hear a short clip from the show. It's in Turkish. So for those of you who are learning Turkish out there, this will be great practice. Our audience in Turkey will certainly be able to follow. We're going to hear the clip and then talk a little more about it. Hocam hoş geldiniz. Hoş bulduk. Nasılsınız hocam? Teşekkür ederim. Sağ olun. Sizler de iyisiniz. Sizler de iyisiniz. Hamdolsun hocam. Şimdi bir sorumuzla başlayalım. İzleyicimiz eşiyle ilgili bize danışmış. Şöyle diyor. Ben bir sene oluyor evleneli. Eşim devamlı oyun oynuyor. Bütün akşam elinde diyebilirim. İletişimimiz aslında çok güzel ama çok fazla zamanını alıyor bu durum. Bir kızımız oldu yeni ama yine de azalmadı. Tabii böyle olsun istemiyorum. Ee, acaba ne yapmalıyım? Dile getirmemem mi gerekir demiş. Şimdi evlilikte iki tane farklı dünyanın bir araya gelmesi var. Ve beraber bir araya geldikleri zamandı. Alışkanlıklar var bir yaşantınızın. Belki kendi evlenmeden önce beyefendi akşamdan evine gidiyordu. Hı hı. Gündüz görüşse bile nişanlık döneminde. Evinde oyunla oynamaya devam ediyordu. Kızımız bunu görmüyordu. Hı. Şimdi evlenince tabii akşam o vakit ne kadarsa işten geldikten sonra yatmaya kadar ve ondan sonraki vakti eşinizle beraber geçirmeniz gerekiyor. O zaman da yanınızdaki insana sorumluluklarınız var. Bu sorumluluklarınız şöyle düşünüyor erkekler. E şimdi yani benim yapacağım bir şey yok yani. İşte hani yardım ettim tamam ama yapacağım bir noktaya çocuğa ben bakmıyorum. E, beraber oturup bir şey de paylaşmıyoruz. O zaman e, onun hayatındaki olan nokta nedir? Oyun oynamak. Oyun oynamaya devam ediyor. Yani burada ben evlilikten sıkıldığı için e, eşiyle vakit geçirmek istemediği için ya da sorumluluk sahibi olmadığı için böyle bir oyun oynama diye bir durum yok. Hı hı. Ama hayatında ne vardı? Evlenmeden önce kitap okuyorsa olsaydı kitap okuyacaktı. Televizyon seyrediyor olsaydı televizyon seyredecekti ya da daha çok böyle sohbet etmeye yanındaki insanla zaman geçirmeye müsait bir yapısı olsaydı onu yapacaktı. O yüzden de şimdi evlenmeden önce oyun oynuyordu. Evlendi değişen bir nokta yok. Farklı bir eve geldi. Kendine göre sorumluluklarını yerine getiriyor ve oyun oynamaya devam ediyor. Tabii ki doğru mu? Değil. Çünkü yani eğer kadın açısından baksak o da akşam belki evinde rahat oturup kendine göre istediği saatte yatmayı isterken bir bebek var. Bebekle ilgileniyor. Bebekle ilgilenmek tabii onun için bir zorunluluk değil. Keyfiyet yani seviyor. Anne sorumluluğunu yerine getiriyor ama orada belki eşinin de bu konuda onun yanında olması gerekiyor. İkaz etse tehlikeli. Etmese buna katlanması sıkıntı. O yüzden de şöyle karar verecek. Diyecek ki evet tamam oyun oynamaktan hoşlanıyorsun. Ama iş yerine gittiğin zaman iş hayatını planlarken yani işte çalışırken e, orada ben onu bırakayım da oyun oynayayım diyemiyorsun. Hı hı. E, dinlenme saatlerini kendine göre değerlendirebiliyorsun. O yüzden de evde e, bunun saatini koyması lazım. Ne kadar işte e, 40 dakika 45 dakika oynayacaksın ondan sonra bunu kapatacaksın diye e, koyması gerekiyor. Eğer bunu yapmazsa dur, anlatsın yani e, bizimle zaman geçirmediğin için bizimle ilgilenmediğini düşündüğümüz için ya da beraber bir şeyleri paylaşamadığımızı düşündüğümüz için bende bu noktalarda zamanla öfke olabilir. 
zamanla kendimi kötü hissedebilirim ve belki bu konudan değil ama başka bir konudan dolayı ben öfkelenebilirim. Bir yıllık evliyiz, birbirimizi tanımıyoruz. Sen beni öfkeli kabul edebilirsin. O zaman da evliliğimiz zarar görür. O yüzden de ben hani senden rica ediyorum buna bir sınır getir gibi biraz daha karşıdakini anlayan ve bu yaptığı oyun konusunu kendisiyle bağlantı kurmayan bir konuşma yaparsa faydası olur. So we just heard a brief clip, a question posed to a expert guest, a psychologist on the show, şimdi ne yapmalı, concerning a husband who is always playing video games at home. I mean, our gamer listeners out there will probably want to know what games he's actually playing. It does make a difference. I mean, there's some really great games out there <laughs> in, in 2016. Um, it's a big difference whether he's playing Candy Crush on his phone or really sitting at a, at a proper console and playing a game that is worth one's time. But we won't have time to delve into that. But we will turn now to our expert guest, Hikmet Kocamaner. You know, what were, what, what were the solutions? You said this is a solution-oriented program. Şimdi ne yapmalı? It sounds like it. Uh, so what are these solutions uh, that the psychologist who appeared on the program was, was offering to this question of what to do about the video game playing husband? So what's interesting here is the definition of marriage proposed by the family counselor. So she talks about marriage not in kind of romanticized, idealized terms where each couple right. is completely compatible with each other, but actually as a domain of clashing life worlds. Everybody comes with their kind of um, different habits and uh, behaviors into the marriage. And because of gender differences, there are times where these different lifestyles would uh, inevitably clash with each other. So according to this perspective, although men are supposed to be the head of house households, at the same time, they are more involved in their own affairs rather than fulfilling their familiar responsibilities. It's because right. of the way they are raised from an early age on. She says that naturally, a husband, when he comes home, he doesn't think that it's his responsibility to raise the kid because he sees that the wife happily raises the child, not because it's her only obligation, but because he sees that she likes doing that job. So she does. he doesn't think that it's his duty to raise the child or do household chores. Um, instead, he likes to spend time to entertain himself, sometimes by playing video games, sometimes by watching TV, sometimes by watching the news or uh, reading newspapers and books instead of spending time with his family. Basically, she recommends that warning and scolding the husband would alienate him further and he would be defensive instead of actually changing his behavior. So instead of that, the better way to go about this issue is to talk in a mild manner uh, to discuss this problem and say that I understand you want to play video games. It's a natural kind of uh, desire to play video games, but imagine your household as if it's your workplace. So in the workplace, can you play video games? Of course not. You have to fulfill your responsibilities as an employee. You can only do that during your lunch break or other uh, free time. So she asks the wife to ask the husband 
to basically approach this issue in the same way and consider uh, basically family time as a part of his responsibility and duty as a husband and as, as a father and basically dedicate only a certain amount of his time, perhaps 40-45 minutes each day to play those computer games and other times to spend time with his daughter and to spend time with his wife to prepare the to help her perhaps prepare the dinner to help her raise the kid so in a way the psychologist she she normalizes the issue says it's not necessarily some bigger thing like this is a manageable issue it requires a discipline and a, and a gentle approach and really emphasizes this element of responsibility that the man needs to be made aware that he has responsibilities in the home. And this issue is family, familiar responsibility comes up a lot in a lot of the Islamic shows that I uh, analyzed. So the main reason for the crisis of the family is because the family members are not fulfilling their responsibilities for providing care, for providing affection and nurturance to their family members appropriately. And one of the kind of issues that come up is, for example, husbands who do not provide uh, for their families financially. And fathers who spend time outside of the home, either gambling or spending time uh, with his male peers outside of the home instead of spending time with his kids and with his wife. So Islamic television shows usually inculcate uh, this familial duties and responsibilities to their audiences as a moral obligation as well as a religious obligation. But what I try to show in, uh, in my uh, book as well as the forthcoming article is how this kind of responsibilizing the family articulates with larger uh, economic processes and emerging forms of governance in Turkey as it pertains to the uh, neoliberal economic reforms. Yeah, and I, I think that leads us to a, maybe a, a more broader concluding discussion for our interview because, I mean, the clip we just heard, and of course I chose that one based on the ones that Hikmet had provided to me, uh, but you know, we've described it as Islamic television, but there's nothing Islamic about the problem or the answer per se, right? R rather, it's it's something that we would expect to hear on television programs in other countries. And you've made a lot of interesting parallels between television in Turkey today and sort of daytime television in America, whether shows that resemble Oprah and Donahue and these sort of like um, issue talk shows or Judge Judy. You also referred to televangelists, which I found was an interesting metaphor. So these programs within the Turkish cultural context clearly have a, an Islamic valence, but in light of that fact, everything we've been discussing, uh, sort of analytically, is there a more nuanced way of conceptualizing such programming, such family-oriented projects uh, as not merely Islamic uh, that can account for the parallels we seen, see between Turkey and, and similar contexts elsewhere in the world? where the relationship between uh, religion and secular state institutions, between uh, the public and the private, may be different? Yeah, thank you for this excellent question. And I, I think it helps us to contextualize it 
not within just the specific context of Turkey, but looking at the larger, perhaps global phenomenon that's happening in many, many other parts of the world uh, governed by uh, secular norms. So, you know, looking at this phenomenon, a lot of the people in Turkey as well as outside observers would consider this as some sort of an Islamization project, trying to govern uh, society through the family uh, in terms of uh, religious norms and doctrines, and they, they would see this as some sort of the ultimate evidence that the current AKP govern, government is kind of uh, backsliding from secularism, um, or would see this as some sort of a sign of an um, Turkey's incomplete uh, secularization vis-a-vis uh, other secular countries. But as you just brought it up, this phenomenon is not unique to Turkey or even the Middle East. Even um, in countries that are often considered as the paradigmatic examples of secularism, such as the United States and France, we see that a lot of faith-based and uh, religiously motivated groups see themselves as the defenders of the traditional family, right? So um, a lot of these faith-based groups are involved in an effort to impact uh, public discussions and even state policies uh, pertaining to intimacy and the family. For example, contraception, debates about abortion, LGBT marriage, um, reproductive technologies, adoption and so on, uh, we see a lot of religiously motivated actors um, spearheading these uh, discussions. So in a lot of these secular countries, we see, you know, religious actors being kind of um, uh, excluded from policymaking and religious reasoning is almost never part of uh, policymaking and legal decision making, at least in principle. However, still we see these groups um, kind of retaining their role um, in kind of uh, protecting so-called family values and having a say in regulating the uh, family. So I think we need to kind of complicate the conventional wisdom that what's happening in Turkey um, in terms of the participation of faith-based groups in the politics of the family is a sign of... uh, Turkey's, you know, aberration from secularism. So if if the family is a litmus test, um, it is not just Turkey other, or other Muslim-majority countries that are failing this test, right? So uh, because, you know, in on the contrary, in a lot of our, you know, public discussions and academic analysis, we never talk about U.S. or France as increasingly becoming, you know, theocratic countries or something like that. Um, so I, I propose in, in a more kind of abstract theoretical way, um, following a lot of the interdisciplinary secularism studies emerging in latest years um, to complicate our understanding of secularism as not just simply being a separation between religion and politics. And uh, what I found useful is Um, Hussein Agrama's description of uh, secularism as some sort of historical problem space uh, following David Scott. Um, So in this uh, problem space, 
we have a kind of a it consists of a historical ensemble of uh, questions and attached stakes um, but the main focus of these questions is mostly um, where to draw the line between religion and politics and also determining what the limits of religion in society should be. And the answer to this question have been changing historically, right? And they've been contested historically as well. So what I argue is that in the contemporary period, not only in Turkey, but globally, I think, uh, at least in countries that we consider secular liberal, um, the family emerges as kind of the key site uh, through which the role of religion in governance have been um, debated, contested, and uh, refigured. So the family emerges specifically because of um, comprising this problem space of secularism. Family emerges as a flashpoint in public debates about the role of religion. So I think that's why we need to you know, think in more nuanced terms rather than seeing it as either some sort of theocratization or aberration from secularism. We need to see this at a more kind of global perspective and see that this is actually not just happening in Turkey, but in many parts of the world. And how can we think about this is uh, important. And I'd be happy to talk more about how these projects are taking shape in Turkey in a kind of a more complicated way that is not just necessarily religious, but it's comprised an interesting encounter between religious and secular discourses and different forms of expertise and authority. Well, yeah, let's discuss that a little more because perhaps we can focus more on the issue of, of governance or the, the political projects uh, related uh, to this trend. I mean, as we see in the example of Turkey and elsewhere, these discourses surrounding the family concern particularly the issue of crisis, some idea that in, in the modern times we live in, the family is under unique pressures or uh, is potentially under threat or in crisis for various reasons as a result of you know, socioeconomic changes. This is how the problems and solutions are often framed in the types of uh, projects you've been working on. And it, it resonates with, again, again, the American context as well, the one that I'm familiar with. So in thinking about politics and governance again, if we look at the Directorate of Religious Affairs or Dianet in Turkey, in claiming to provide some answer to the problems, some solution to the crisis of the family that's kind of being put out there uh, into the arena of especially conservative discourse, as we sometimes call it. Dianet is therefore laying claim to a sort of jurisdiction within larger uh, society and the political institutions of modern Turkey. Yeah, so the jurisdiction of Dianet and the kind of jurisdiction of religious authority as it pertains to the family is quite an interesting phenomenon. So constitutionally, the INS jurisdiction is limited to, as the name suggests, religious affairs. So if um, the INET is proposing or providing other forms of services, it needs to still be framed within this kind of particular 
constitutional definition of religion. So when Dianet opened these offices, there were a lot of controversies, especially because of the name of these family offices, because it's called Family Guidance and Religious Counseling Offices. So people thought that Dianet itself is providing psychological and psychosocial support to families, basically re replacing the secular field of uh, family therapy, uh, counseling, and psychoanalysis with perhaps some sort of religious counseling. But when you, somebody like me, does field work in, in, in Dianet, you see that the uh, situation is uh, much more complex than this. It's not quite how it's happening. So in its kind of um, legal directive, the domain of the services provided by Dianet has been constrained as only religious services. Um, and what they provide through these uh, family offices is to answer um, family-related religious questions and to provide religious counseling as it pertains to the family, but again, within the limit of uh, religion. So, for example, people can visit these offices to ask whether it is a sin to disrespect a parent. And then, you know, Dianet would answer either by educating a fatwa about this, whether it's a sin or not. Or in this case, for example, they would want to know why actually this person is asking this question and providing some sort of moral support and spiritual counseling, underlining, for example, the uh, significant place of elders and respecting elders and relatives in Islamic traditions, perhaps by referring to prophets uh, um, sunnah or his sadiths, perhaps somehow, somehow, sometimes bringing, um, you know, certain verses of the Quran to explain uh, why we should be respecting our elders and not disrespect them. But oftentimes, of course, this provides a very limited uh, solution to people's family problems. And a lot of the times, preachers working for these family offices are advised through training sessions to inquire what might be the underlining cause of a particular problem, family-related problem. So in a training session that I attended, the trainer brought up this example. A woman calls and asks, is it a sin to steal money from my husband's wallet? And obviously, the answer to this question is that it's a sin. But she's argued that we couldn't just like let it go and say this is a sin, you know, buy and hang up the phone or send them away. So she said that we should inquire into this uh, problem. Maybe we'll find out that the husband is an alcoholic. He gambles all his money and he doesn't support his family. Um, he doesn't provide any money. And the woman perhaps is a disabled child that needs special attention. And the wife cannot even find the money, you know, uh, to buy a stale piece of bread. So there's nothing she can do but to steal the money out of her husband's uh, wallet. So we need to inquire and then see that, well, this guy 
obviously needs professional assistance to resolve his addiction problem, which is alcoholism and gambling. Right. So he should be directed to specific authorities in Turkey that specialize in addiction. And the wife needs free health care for herself and for the child because the husband doesn't support her. So she should be referred to the Ministry of uh, Health and Ministry of Social Services to apply for free or at least affordable health care. And they should go through family therapy to, you know, resolve this, you know, family problem. Or perhaps, you know, she should seek divorce. So as we see in this example, what Dianet is trying to do is not just to resolve domestic problems through religious advice and through kind of indoctrinating this uh, kind of conservative notion of the family, but actually Dianet acts as an important bureaucratic conduit that connects families to these other institutions and experts. What is also interesting here is that the target audience for Dianet's services is not necessarily non-religious secular segments of the society. When I interviewed uh, a lot of the employees working there, in including the executives of Dianet, uh, they told me that they keep records of these and uh, most of the time it's uh, religiously observant people especially those uh, coming from a lower socioeconomic background and people with lower uh, educational backgrounds, mostly um, women, although men also uh, benefit from these services, especially housewives um, who don't have uh, higher levels of education, mostly uh, elementary to middle school education. So Dianet's services act, these family-related services act as an interesting um, gateway to introducing uh, these families, especially women, to other government services uh, that Dianet employees believe uh, that they would otherwise not be aware of these uh, services because they believe that a religious observant person in their imagination uh, wouldn't be inclined to seek, for example, psychological therapy. Um, and what I found very interesting is these employees, these preachers working for Dianet get trained in methods about how to inculcate in uh, religiously observant people about how to seek these professional services. In one of the training sessions that I attended, uh, they went so far as to suggest that seeking psychological assistance is actually not something against Islam. On the contrary, it is perhaps uh, encouraged, if not mandated. Uh, and the term that the uh, trainer used was very interesting. She said, it's some sort of a religious imperative. Mm. We see seeking psychological and other forms of professional help as being very much compatible uh, with being a good Muslim. Because if you don't do this, then you are not going to have a healthy psychology and mm -hmm. your family would not be uh, functioning properly. So therefore, it's your duty as a Muslim to fix your family problem. And religion can only provide a certain portion of this problem. Mm -hmm. But they suggest that other than religion, there are, there are other aspects 
uh, that help us solve our domestic problems. So we see, despite this being a theological institution uh, in character, uh, we see a very clear demarcation of different forms of expertise and authority. And, right. th and there are different hierarchies that are established. So they obviously see spiritual counseling and religious guidance as being an integral part of providing solutions to family problems. However, they also admit that our uh, expertise is limited. And sometimes we need to confer these problems to other experts. And although they see religious counseling as being complementary to psychosocial support, they still retain that hierarchical understanding that certain experts who are trained in this field mm -hmm. ha should have more say in the matter and they should be more involved in the situation. And that's why I think in the show that I uh, that we just played, although it's a, aired on Dianet television, which is yeah. religious programming, we see a lot of experts from other fields who are authorities in their own uh, areas of expertise, such as uh, legal issues, mm -hmm. such as uh, psychology, therapy, pediatricians, and all sorts of other forms of expertise being represented within this diverse assemblage. Well, it certainly is reminiscent of the way in which religious institutions uh, and structures were mobilized in, in, in somewhat earlier public health campaigns in Turkey from really from the beginning of the Republic, you know, in terms of using religion, for example, as a way of uh, inculcating in, in citizens that they need to trust doctors uh, and need to uh, submit to medical testing and treatment rather than seeing these two forces at odds, religious authorities on one hand and medical authorities on the other, we see how they work together um, in a way. Uh, to pursue larger governance goals, let's call them. Exactly. And also, another thing that we should emphasize here is if you are thinking about this as some sort of a, a governmental project, governmental in the Foucauldian sense, conduct of conduct, so in order to discipline and in order to um, administer the intimate affairs of these families, these kind of religious services also make the authority, especially the sovereign authority of the state, kind of encroach into the family sphere of religiously observant families. Um, so making them in a way more kind of uh, proximate to state authority. So if you consider that Diyanet is one of the largest bureaucratic institutions in Turkey. Even the smallest city has a müftülük, a müftiyet, a müftis office affiliated with the Diyanet. Um, you can see the extent of the enormity of this project in terms of uh, extending the extending state power into the intim intimate domains of families. So you are not only regulating their religious beliefs through mosque sermons and other publications than religious education. But now the state is actually regulating, administering, and disciplining the gender and family affairs of citizens, especially religious observant families, through the honest uh, family services. 
Right. And while not everything about that is completely new in the new Turkey, we have ended on an interesting point in the conversation. We started out by questioning the idea that the ascendance of institutions like Dianet is a symbol of maybe a backslide away from secularism back into like an Islamic uh, form of politics at the beginning of our podcast. Here at the end, we're actually looking at how uh, the family serves as a sort of frontier of governance in a way and how religion plays a role in that. And so it's a very interesting conversation that, as we've said, has relevance, not just for Turkey and other countries of the Middle East, but it's something that we can observe um, in, in different locations throughout the world, manifesting in different forms. Obviously, uh, it requires uh, much more uh, conversation and work than we uh, have the space to do today on this podcast, but I do thank you, Hikmet, uh, for coming on and sharing your research with us, for talking to us and, and really providing a window onto a very interesting phenomenon that's going on in Turkey. My pleasure. Thank you. I'm sure some of our listeners who have stayed to the end want to learn a lot more about what we've been talking about. That's why Hikmet Kojamaner has provided us with a short bibliography that is available on our website, ottomanhistorypodcast.com. That's all for this episode. Thanks for tuning in. We're going to leave you with a musical selection from our friends at Muhtalif, a song called Samsa. Söyle ona, ayna ayna söyle ona, ayna ayna söyle ona.